0: the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Leah Heigl, and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir. And today we're going to talk about nutrition for PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. I feel like some people also call it PCOS. Have you heard that? Yeah, I've seen that.
1: Yeah, and the other one is polycystic (laughs) ovary syndrome as well. I see that all the time too. Right.
0: Well, we are talking about, we're going to call it PCOS, and that's what we're talking about today. So we know PCOS affects about 12 to 18% of women of reproductive age, um, but up to 70% of women actually go undiagnosed. So this is a really big area where a lot of people have the condition um, but don't actually have a diagnosis. Um, So very similar to like endo and Adamiosis and a lot of women just go yeah. undiagnosed, yeah. which is a little bit of like, I have a bit of gripe with the medical industry for and like that. And how
1: long it takes to get a diagnosis as well with both of those? Yes,
0: yeah. mostly, yeah. Um, so polycystic means many cysts. Um, so usually in PCOS, people will have cysts on their ovaries, but it's not always part of the condition. So there are three things that go into PCOS, and you do need to have at least two of these symptoms in order to be diagnosed. Um, So the first is lack of ovulation, so causing irregular menstrual cycles, whether that's being too often or too infrequent, um, or no cycle at all. The second is excessive testosterone that can be detected in a blood test. um, And the third is obviously the cysts. So other symptoms of PCOS do include things like excessive hair growth, particularly like body and facial hair. Um, It could also be hair loss in a lot of cases. Uh, There's definitely some skin changes in some people. So like darkening of the skin or experiencing things like acne. Um, Something that does get talked a lot about in regards to PCOS is the weight gain factor or struggle with maintaining a healthy weight. Um, And there's also things that go into it like anxiety, depression, sleep apnea, and uh, difficulty conceiving. So the issues with fertility are also a big one under this topic.
1: For sure. Another common thing to go alongside PCOS is that most women with PCOS also experience insulin resistance. Not every single person with with PCOS has insulin resistance, but it is about 85%. So it is a pretty high one. I was even reading a paper earlier today that was titled something along the lines of every woman with PCOS should be treated as if they have insulin resistance. And there was a letter to the editor in response to that being like, well, no, not every everybody with PCOS has this. But like that's how common it is that even amongst health professionals, there's people having that kind of debate. Um, on average, women with PCOS are 35 to 40% less sensitive to insulin than the average woman. Um, It's also skewed a little bit, because as we said, weight gain or being of a higher BMI is pretty commonly linked with PCOS. Um, But not everybody with PCOS has a higher body weight. There is lean PCOS as well. People with lower body weights can still have PCOS. But the numbers for insulin resistance are still skewed a little bit in terms of those with higher body fat typically have more insulin resistance. Those with lower body fat still have less insulin resistance than those with higher body fat. But on that topic, they still have a bit more insulin resistance than their lean counterparts without PCOS. So it is still, on average, something that is worth being aware of. And this is obviously part of why some other conditions like diabetes, that risk is increased due to PCOS because that is obviously going to be linked with the insulin resistance and how it's going to affect blood glucose levels and everything like that. But it also is a pretty strong link with a lot of these other symptoms like A lot of the steps taken in the management of PCOS can include kind of addressing the insulin resistance, and they also seem to have common outcomes in terms of improving a lot of the other symptoms of PCOS alongside that as well.
0: So in terms of managing PCOS, I mean, the first thing that I always tend to do is just generally look at, is this person... Do they have a healthy diet do they have like are they meeting all of their kind of core food groups getting in enough fruits and veg whole grains all that stuff because like many conditions it does come down to just having a quality diet and i kind of consider that as being like the base of the pyramid when we're thinking about treating or like nutrition for pcos um so that base of that pyramid is generally having a well-rounded diet and then you can kind of move up that pyramid to more like specific strategies person to person.
1: Yeah, for sure. A lot of it does come back to that. And that's also interesting because a lot of people take slightly more extreme approaches and stuff like that in the management of PCOS. So the fact that we come back to it and being like, no, healthy diet is the foundation can kind of help filter through through some approaches as well. Leading on from that, weight management is often one of the most commonly looked at areas. As I said, lean PCOS can exist, but In a lot of cases, people can benefit from getting leaner because we know that as a general typical thing, when people decrease the amount of body fat they have, their insulin sensitivity improves. That's an across-the-board thing, with or without PCOS, and if insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance is such a big factor in a lot of management, that is part of why this works so well. So... As I said, decreases in body fat, so all the same kind of stuff in terms of um, weight management that would normally apply outside of PCOS typically will apply with PCOS. One of the differences that is worth being aware of, and it's something that we've spoken about a little bit in terms of um, why is it harder to lose weight with PCOS? Why is it often considered that? And there's one study that I've tried to bring a little bit more... What's the word? Popularity? Awareness. Awareness. Awareness is the word I'm looking for, yeah. I'll try to bring a a little bit more awareness to this one study that basically showed that in their sample size, people with PCOS typically had a basal metabolic rate which was 14 to 40% lower than what would be expected without PCOS. And... That's enough to care about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's something we should ignore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and like for context, like basal metabolic rate could be somewhere between fifty and seventy percent of your total energy expenditure, or forty to seventy percent. It depends on how much exercise, depends on all these other variables. But like, let's say you're at the extreme end of that spectrum and it's lowered by forty percent. That could be like a twenty percent reduction in total daily energy expenditure. Um, Most, a lot of people diet on 20% lower than their total daily energy expenditure. So you could argue that it's kind of like perpetually dieting just to maintain your body weight, which is part of why how it could be harder um, to lose weight PCOS. Um, in that study, one of the key things that they also noted was that people who had more insulin resistance also were the ones who had their basal metabolic rate dropped by the most, and the people who were the least insulin resistance were closer towards that 14% than they were towards the 40%. Um, that is something that isn't an across-the-board thing with insulin resistance. That seems to be pretty unique to PCOS from what I can see. And as a side note on all of this as well, because that has shaped my thinking quite a bit, there are also other studies on this topic that kind of make it a little bit more complex. There's two other studies that I'm aware of where they did use smaller sample sizes, but they also looked at the same kind of thing, and they couldn't find any differences in total daily energy expansion between PCOS and people without PCOS. So... The best case scenario, there's no no difference. The worst case scenario, it, it is a little bit harder to lose weight. And me personally, I, I, I kind of look towards the worst case scenario and just like, if anything, it gives me a little bit more empathy to a certain degree
0: you approach it with a bit more compassion that yeah. that, pa- that person if they do have like a 30% lower basal metabolic rate than what would be expected yeah it is going to be harder for them to lose weight so yeah. I don't like to brush it off I do like to go it's a possibility yeah, yeah. for sure
1: and another aspect of that that I always think is important because I'm like I don't is, is that useful information does it help anybody it can give us compassion it can give us empathy it can give us all these things does it help somebody in that situation I don't necessarily think so but the way I actually personally think about it is it doesn't change the rules. It doesn't mean we don't have to it doesn't mean we have to do anything differently. We don't have to start doing a drastically different approach. It doesn't change the rules. It's playing the same game, it's just on a higher difficulty setting, basically. That's how I think it through it is still a challenge that can be overcome.
0: So the next thing we're going to talk about is anti-inflammatory style diets. So when it comes to PCOS, like there's so many different approaches that all different kind of practitioners take. But I find when we look at the research, it really comes down to having a a well-balanced diet, diet, like I said before, and then on top of that, following something that is generally anti-inflammatory in terms of maybe it's like the Mediterranean diet or predominantly plant-based. It contains a lot of fiber and and omega-3s and antioxidants and things like that. So we know that approach does work well for PCOS, Um, particularly like the Mediterranean diet is something that a lot of practitioners will use for this. Is that something that you kind of use in your practice?
1: I use features from it. So like the high healthy fats, the high vegetable intake, higher fiber intake, um, more plant-based foods, those kind of things I definitely utilize for most people with PCOS, yeah.
0: Yeah, and in my thoughts, like the Mediterranean diet, it really is just a style of a healthy diet. So it just makes sense. Um, So this is not like a low-carb approach, um, but it does show to have... Like it has been shown to have a lot of positive outcomes um, in the research.
1: And that's exactly what I'm kind of referring to when I'm like, it it allows you to filter through some stuff. Like being aware that the research on the Mediterranean diet and PCOS is consistently linked with positive outcomes kind of allows you to filter through some other stuff, which I'm going to get into now actually, like in terms of carbohydrates and stuff like that. So the mechanism behind why some people will be pitching low-carb diets is related to insulin resistance almost all the time. The concept basically is if you have carbs high all the time and you're insulin resistant, there's a lot of insulin going around at all times, basically. And theoretically, obviously, it makes sense to go lower carb. That can help address that because insulin will suddenly be lower. And then all of these other things that are potentially related to insulin resistance and are causing other symptoms related to PCOS can suddenly be a little bit diminished. But that's why I come back to the Mediterranean diet showing such positive outcomes because it's like, hang on, if it was just about carbs... (laughs) That wouldn't be the case
0: it wouldn't work yeah Yeah. because the
1: Mediterranean diet is not a low carb diet it's not a high high carb diet but it is higher than some of the alternatives we're looking at um one side thing to factor in is if you decrease your carbohydrate intake you often always well you often will also decrease your calorie intake so that's going to help from the weight management side of things there is small scale research utilizing very low carbohydrate diets which are showing positive outcomes but that's Putting it out there being like, well, that's another option that's available to us. It, it's more being like you don't have to choose that option. You don't have to choose a Mediterranean diet. Like you can, there's multiple options here that work quite well. Um, challenges associated with that are obviously adherence, quality of life, and micronutrient intake. Like going through all of those individually. Um, in terms of like adherence, I have seen quite a few studies where people have been striving for particularly ketogenic diets and at the end of a decent time frame, where it's three months, six months, 12 months or whatever, almost nobody is in ketosis because it's hard to stay that low, low, low carb. That's not necessarily just low carb. That's very low carb. Um, in terms of quality of life, it's hard to stay strictly low carb if you like, if you want to eat out with friends, family, all those kind of things, you can do it. It's just hard. Like a lot of people might not necessarily want to do that. And the micronutrients, it's just like, that's not really a big concern, but like it is, harder to reach some of those things and in terms of a slightly more balanced way of potentially thinking about it there's other stuff like reducing the glycemic index of your foods so i don't know about you like do do you ever use glycemic index with clients i don't really talk about it much
0: i don't really talk about it but i think that also goes back to the kind of clients i work with at the same time
1: yeah for sure so like I, i don't talk about glycemic index much most people know what glycemic index is like high is typically considered bad low is typically considered good. High GI foods typically spike our blood glucose levels is what people are talking about. I prefer think of it in terms of glycemic load, which is basically the amount of carbohydrate multiplied by the glycemic index. So if something is really high carb and high GI, it's going to raise your blood glucose levels more, more insulin is going to be required. But like it makes it more interesting because it's like watermelon, for example, is high GI. But if you had a small to moderate serve of watermelon and say it's seven grams of carbs, like it's not much carbs and it's high GI, it doesn't matter, it's not really spiking blood glucose because there's so little carbohydrates. So glycemic load is factoring in the total amount of carbs and the glycemic index. But like theoretically, if you were going to eat the same amount of carbs and you reduce your glycemic index slightly, it can help with management of um, PCOS. That's been shown in research that even links up with Mediterranean diet and stuff like that, because typically that is low added sugar and stuff like that too. But as a side note, where a lot of people are talking about lower-carb diets are often, when they're pointing to the research, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they're pointing to these studies that are showing people drop from like 55% of their diet in terms of calories coming from carbohydrates to like 40%. And then being like, oh, lower-carbohydrate diets is better. And just kind of extrapolating that dropping from 40 down to... 20% would be a further improvement or dropping from 20 down to 10% would be a further improvement. Whereas like we, we know that like 55% to start off is quite high (laughs) dropping from 40% is showing massive improvements and stuff like that. And it's like, you could taper it down and that's actually what I often do in practice. Like if I was to, for example, write out macros for somebody with PCOS, I would take a little bit off. I wouldn't actually take. Go on like the
0: lower end of what you like acceptable carbohydrate amount
1: yeah for sure and as i said with all of this like there's many ways to do it low carb could work mediterranean diet could work lowering the glycemic index of your diet could work there's heaps of options here and it's kind of choosing whatever you think would personally work best for yourself
0: yeah and and i think when it also comes to low carb like we also have to take into account that not everyone pcos is insulin resistant so that's a factor and we're also not like the research and what we know about pcos isn't super clear in terms of We okay. If there is insulin resistance, what symptoms is that attributed to, or like what's linked together? Like there could be symptoms of PCOS that have nothing to do with insulin resistance.
1: Like actually talking through that as well. Like there was a study I was reading earlier on metformin because we know metformin improves insulin sensitivity, improves the ability of the pancreas to put out um, insulin as well. Um, One of these studies on metformin improved pretty much all symptoms of PCOS. Like, like, like quite literally like the changes in hair growth, that was massively fixed. Um, their menstrual cycle improved, ovulation improved. They started losing weight, um, cholesterol improved. All these things improved just from adding metformin. But then there's two other studies where metformin didn't really do anything. And it's like, if it was just as simple as insulin resistance, then metformin should be pretty consistent across the board and I'm just saying I'm not going like into medical stuff and being like this is going to be a big deal and like I'm like don't take that too literally but like I'm just extrapolating from that being like if it was just insulin resistance that's all we need to care about it should be more consistent from what I could see
0: yeah, there's no easy answer to PCOS unfortunately at the moment. So it's like we're just gonna talk through the different things that are on the table. Yeah. Um, just to give you an idea of, you know, what's out there. Um and the next thing that I'm gonna talk about is the dairy and gluten free style of like PCOS management. Um and I find this to be very common online.
1: That's the go to. Everyone yeah. <laughs> everyone like you mentioned PCOS and somebody's gonna chime in being like, Have you tried? Have you <laughs>
0: tried dairy free and gluten free? Yeah. Um and yeah, so that's something you will hear about all the time, even just googling nutrition for PCOS. Um, But there's really no strong research or evidence saying that going dairy or gluten-free is going to be tied to better management of PCOS or the symptoms of PCOS. Like we just don't have that data. It's basically, it's based on the assumption that dairy and gluten cause inflammation in the body. PCOS is an inflammatory condition, um, so it must make it worse. And then it's just people kind of going on that down that rabbit hole along that tangent and going, okay, we're gonna go dairy and gluten free without any actual evidence behind it.
1: Yeah, and like anecdotally, I could see like somebody doing that, eating less calories, losing weight, and maybe that helps. Like I can see, and there's like heaps of people who would anecdotally find that that has helped, and if it has helped you for even reasons unrelated to that, that's awesome. But based on the research we have, like it doesn't seem like it's necessarily helping in any way. I was trying to look at it from the other angle, being like, how could this help? And one of the things that did pop into my mind was there's a small link between dairy and acne, and PCOS has a link with acne, obviously, and maybe there could be some improvements there. Because I'm always like, every time I'm, trying, every time I'm going to dismiss something, I'm like, what what reason could there be benefits to this? And like, that's one of the things I was thinking of. But I don't even necessarily like talking about that, because me personally, if I did have acne, I probably still wouldn't give up dairy completely maybe i'd reduce intake maybe i don't know but like
0: it's probably not the first thing you're gonna try it's not the first thing
1: well. i'm gonna try yeah yeah so there is a link there but it's not like i, I hate putting this message out there because i'd hate for somebody to listen to this and be like oh didn't said like <laughs> there's a link between dairy and acne i'm never gonna have dairy again like yeah. for that reason when there's there's a lot of other reasons and factors that should be in that decision basically
0: and i think when it comes to anecdotal evidence particularly with like the dairy and gluten-free it's Typically, when I see people remove those things from their diet, they also just generally improve their diet quality yeah. anyway. So it's really hard to say yeah. that it was that specific food that they got rid of that did the thing. Or maybe it's the fact they're exercising and eating fruit and veg and and doing more of that now.
1: Yeah. So the next thing we're going to talk about is supplements. So the most common one that people would go to with PCOS right now is probably going to be inositol and the most common recommendation for this is 2 to 4 grams per day of myoinositol. But do you want to talk about that because you'll know more on that topic. You've just written a blog post about this. So, do you yeah. want to go through that?
0: Yeah. So, I this is kind of brand new information to me. Um, but I've always recommended myoinositol in that like that particular recommendation you just said because that's what other dietitians around me had yeah. had recommended. It was just something that everyone recommended. Um, but looking further into the research I found that what seems to be the most effective form of inositol is actually a, a, like a 40 to 1 ratio of myo-inositol to d-chiro-inositol. Um, so myo-inositol has demonstrated to be pretty good at improving egg quality and like those things around fertility, um, whilst d-chiro has been shown more to help with insulin sensitivity and improving those factors. Um, so they're, they're both great across the board in terms of the research so far that we have like it's a bit mixed, but I'm like, I'm pretty sold on this as a supplement because there's not too many downsides yeah. to taking it. Um, but the little bit of research we have that is that kind of 40 to one combo of the two tends to have the best outcomes across the board.
1: Yeah. And did you say earlier that like people who have PCOS are often deficient in anesthetics? Yeah.
0: So I, <laughs> I only read this the other day, but People with PCOS have a deficiency of myo-inositol at an ovarian level and that's part of what contributes to some of the symptoms of PCOS yeah. and that's why taking inositol actually can help.
1: Yeah. And I'm assuming that would be like an on average they have a deficiency not like on,
0: yeah, yeah, I guess not across the board, yeah. but on average there's like that deficiency associated at the ovarian level and that yeah. causes a bit of a like a an issue with a hormone signaling in the ovaries.
1: Yeah, cool. The next one that I'll talk about, this isn't actually something like, so me personally, I do recommend a hospital to pretty much everybody with PCOS. With this next one, magnesium it's more of an of interest kind of thing. Like if somebody's super keen on it, I'll go down this route. Um, so magnesium, or if they actually have a really low intake of it, I should say, but magnesium typically can improve insulin sensitivity. The standard dosage is 300 milligrams before bed, which theoretically can improve sleep, but like not always. It's not like super strong, like I'm not going to make that statement. The research is pretty hit and miss on that. Um, anecdotally, I see a lot of people with improved sleep quality from that. The research on people with insomnia seems pretty clear, does help with them most likely. Average person who just doesn't get great sleep, not as strong, but that's part of why the time you afford bed. Um, and once again, as we talked about improving insulin sensitivity should help with all these other things, but... Me personally, I think if somebody had a really high intake of magnesium-rich foods, they probably wouldn't get additional benefit from supplementing. That's part of where we go back to that healthy diet, Mediterranean-style diet. Like these are dietary approaches that are high in magnesium to start off with. You're probably reaping these benefits to start off with anyway. The next one is omega-3s. So typically linked with like reducing inflammation. Um, with PCOS, they could help or they could help reduce testosterone and help with regularity of the menstrual cycle. Once again, this is dependent on what people are doing from a dietary approach. If somebody has a high omega-3 intake from food, say they're having fatty fish or just fish two to three times a week with at least one of those being fatty fish, they're probably getting a decent amount anyway. But like, if they're not doing something like that or doing a strategic dietary approach to get enough omega-3 in, then it could make sense to supplement with somewhere along the lines of 1,000 to 3,000 milligrams of fish oil per day or a plant-based equivalent, what would you go with if you were doing that?
0: Yeah, so just a, your standard microalgae supplement, so your EPA and DHA version of, of, of an omega-3 rather than your ALA.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. Next one, zinc. So 50 milligrams per day has been shown to help with the hair growth or hair loss, um, and once again can also help with insulin resistance. The dosage used in research, that 50 milligram dosage, Is well above the recommended daily intake of eight milligrams per day for females but that's pretty much just due to absorption and stuff like that so it's quite a high dosage but once again if somebody had a really high intake through food like say they were getting well over eight milligrams per day every day through food once again i don't actually think that zinc supplementation would help but it's more, once again, of an and of interesting and if somebody wasn't to get a higher amount through food.
0: This one actually, like, it, it worries me a little bit in terms of, like, I feel uneasy recommending something that's above the upper limit. Yeah, it's quite high. <laughs> so I don't... I see a lot of naturopaths recommend zinc to people with PCOS yeah. and they come through... Um, the clinic and I I don't know like we do have research to say that having a really high intake of zinc can lead to like copper deficiency yeah. and um, zinc toxicity so I'm like I'm not super sold on that one I kind of like
1: think yeah. maybe
0: the consequences of doing that especially if you already have a decent amount in your diet yeah. probably worse than the benefit
1: I, I view it as a one of my lowest kind of recommendations that we do have evidence for being helpful yeah. and I use it as part of my what I call my kitchen sink approach, where it's like chucking the kitchen sink. Like if somebody's like with PCOS and really desperate for answers, it's something that I'd consider the kitchen sink approach for a short phase, where it'd be like let's do magnesium, let's do omega threes, let's do zinc, um, and then the next one we're we'll talk about chromium, vitamin D, and inositol for this phase. And it's like if you do it for a phase, I feel like the downside risk, like that copper deficiency of course, stuff, like yeah. that, that's quite small. But if you did it every day for the long term. That's where I start to get a little bit more fearful of stuff like that. Definitely. So next one, chromium. Once again, not one to actually recommend that often, but systematic review from 2017 indicated that 200 micrograms of chromium picolinate per day could help reduce insulin resistance and testosterone and help with everything. The only reason why that's not one of my frontline recommendations is because at this stage, I'm already recommending a few things. Like I'm probably recommending inositol. I'm probably recommending omega-3s. Like there's only so many supplements I want adding to this as well. Like I don't want to get it out of hand. And another one is vitamin D. So a large percentage of people with PCOS are deficient in vitamin D. As I've spoken about before, I also believe that if you are on the low end of the healthy range, you could probably get additional benefits from it. And in this case, It helps with insulin resistance and something we haven't really touched on, but there's a pretty strong linkage between PCOS and mental health stuff as well, such as depression. So potentially vitamin D could help with mood and stuff like that too.
0: So a few key points to tie this all up. So we know that people with PCOS can benefit from reducing their weight if they are overweight. Um, But again, it should be noted that this isn't always an easy task and there may be that added difficulty of Potentially a lower uh, resting metabolic rate for some people with PCOS and that does need to be considered as part of this. Um, We know that a Mediterranean style diet with a focus on a lot of plant foods and omega-3s is a really great way to go about it. Um, And also a focus on low GI, whole grains and carbohydrates, potentially with maybe moderating your carbohydrate intake. So not necessarily going super low carb, but not going too overboard at the same time um, and then there's like all those supplements that you just talked through so inositol is definitely one i recommend quite across the board for people with pcos as well as omega-3 um, and then you have all the rest which you can kind of pick and choose depending on who you are and what you're dealing with so this has been episode 23 of the ideal nutrition podcast thank you for tuning in and we'll be back next week